think you just need to get your donkey. <laughs> <laughs> now that's better, wouldn't it? All right. Well, we're going to do some singing this morning as we get started. So Ed's going to come up. It's a song we sang before. We're going to sing it again. And uh, to the tune of And Can It Be. Ed, the music man. Please, all answers yourselves. I won't scam you like the real. You can come on over here. Oh, it's easier. <laughs> I was hoping you would lead the thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Life is a time to serve. singing a hymn that seems so morbid. But that's the message. It's right out of chapter 9 that we're in today. And Isaac Watts just took that out of chapter 9 and tried to put it into song, into uh, poetry, so it could be sung as a hymn. And as we look at this chapter today, I hope that uh, you'll find that there's more to it than just morbidity, more to it than just death. Uh, you're going to find that in the midst of this chapter, it's, it's got a message that is the opposite of death. 
I entitled this chapter Imperatives for Living Wisely. And it, it does have imperatives, and they're some of the first imperatives in the book of Ecclesiastes in the enjoyment passages. In chapter 8, we were focusing on the work of God primarily, among other themes. In chapter 9, Solomon returns to talk about the human condition, and specifically that we all are going to die someday. Solomon mentions God only twice here. And you can see them there in verses 1 and 7. He says, For I've taken all this to my heart and explain it that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. And then we go on down further in verse 7. Go then, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your work. So in two ways God is mentioned. One, God's in control. We're in God's hand. Second of all, God has approved us to do what he commands us to do. And we're going to look at those imperatives as we go through the chapter. Verses 7 through 9 are the core of this chapter. It's the, the, it's the main theme of this chapter. It's where we have that enjoyment refrain that we've seen throughout the book. The first time was in chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. And then we saw it again in chapter 5, and we've seen it elsewhere. We're going to see it a couple more times yet before we get to the end of the book. But this is the strongest of all of them. In, in these verses, as we read there in verse 1, Solomon mentions here that he has taken all this to heart. Now, that phraseology has been used by him a number of times. In chapter 1, verses 13 and 17, he said, And I set my mind to seek. That word mind is the word heart. I set my heart to seek and explore by wisdom. And then in verse 17, I set my mind. Again, that's I set my heart to know wisdom, to know madness and folly. And he says this periodically throughout the book. And the concept here is that the heart involves the totality of consciousness. It's not just emotions. It's not just something that is abstract and cannot be interacted with. It involves experience as well as reason. It involves the emotional, sensual, physical, and spiritual avenues of discernment and of thinking and of pursuit. So he's giving his entire being over to this pursuit. And when he says all this, that's everything he's already written about in the book. Remember that he has tried everything. He's tried wisdom. He's tried pleasure. He's tried thinking seriously about elements of like time and how God controls our times. Uh, he's examined, he's, he's visited funerals to examine how people react at funerals, what they think about, how things turn out, watching lives of people, seeing what happens after they're gone, and then questioning what is happening and why it has happened. All of these things, and yet there's more to come. The book isn't finished. He hasn't told us everything that he's examined yet. But all of these things... And he's doing this in order to find an explanation. Now, this is a different word for explanation than we saw back in chapter 7, verses 25 and 27. The word used here in verse 1 uh, is perhaps best translated as examining, testing. And so he's, he's searching for that which results from a thorough examination. He wants to find out the results of all these things. Now, when we think about that, 
the first thing that he mentions to us is this mention of God and saying their deeds, both righteous men and wise men, are, and their deeds are in the hand of God. And so he recognizes that God is in control. Now, remember early in the book, we kind of got the feeling that he was not really looking that much at God until we got to chapter 3. In chapter 3, he talks about how our times are in God's control. But in chapter 1 and 2, when he's pursuing wisdom, when he's pursuing pleasure, we don't see him referring to God being in control. But when he's exhausted the pursuit of education, exhausted the pursuit of, of uh, wisdom and pleasure, when those are gone, he realizes he's not in control. God is in control. And from that point on, chapter 3 on, we constantly see this. In chapter 5, he mentioned that we need to fear God. We need to come to him with the right attitude. And here again, we're seeing his pointing out at the very beginning of this chapter that God is in control. We are in God's hands. The righteous and wise, those two words together, only occur in the same verse in seven different verses in Scripture. And in all of those, it appears that it means they're the same. The righteous person is the wise person. The wise person is the righteous person. So it's talking about wisdom from a spiritual perspective, not from an earthly perspective. And their deeds are in God's control. And that brings up a, a number of things because if God is in control of our deeds, then shouldn't we be able to trust him? And if we trust him uh, in, in all those things that he is doing or allowing to happen in our lives, uh, do we live like it? And I, I found that it's interesting because David, the... Uh, father of Solomon, used that same type of phraseology of the hand of the Lord he used when he was talking to the prophet Gad. And he said to, to Gad, the prophet, let us now fall into the hand of the Lord. Now, what he's talking about in 2 Samuel chapter 24 is that David has performed a census of the people of Israel contrary to the word of God, contrary to God's will. And Gad comes to David and says, you know, you've behaved proudly, arrogantly. You have uh, disobeyed God, and this is going to cause people to die. And as they're getting ready for what God is going to do, in which thousands end up dying, this is David's response. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great but do not let me fall in the hand of man. Now, contrast there is, is uh, instructive because he realizes God's going to be more merciful than man. Perhaps if the people knew why the plague was coming upon them and the thousands would die, perhaps they would have gone and hung David and uh, killed him themselves. But the issue in this situation is not really just the act of David. David's act was the straw that broke the camel's back. The people as a whole had been behaving uh, arrogantly against God and had been working contrary to God's will. And David's act was just the last straw. And God said, that's enough. It's time to judge. We see that about five or six times in Scripture where one man or a group of men commit a sin that brings judgment upon the entire nation of Israel and thousands die. It is not the single sin of that individual that touched it off. 
for those individuals. It is the sin of the nation as a whole. Their sin was merely illustrative of what was going on in the hearts of all the rest. Ecclesiastes 2.24 had the same mention back of the hand of God back in the first enjoyment passage. There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. This also I've seen that it is from the hand of God. There, God is in control of the dispensing of that which is good, his blessings. Now, let's stop here for a minute. In what ways does God reveal his control over your life? In what ways do you sense that and see it? In what ways does God control what happens in your life? Yes. He puts me in positions that I wouldn't have expected. Like uh, one day I was put out of high school and we had uh, 15 minutes and I got to listen in on one of the uh, fathers who lost his daughter that I knew growing up. I never got a chance to give my condolences. Okay. All right. So Gina says God sometimes gives us the opportunity to be in situations where we have the opportunities of uh, knowing something, of learning something, of perhaps even uh, having an opportunity to minister, to share with someone. Yes, John. Um, and just the way it provides from my job and work, there's at one time I lost a job and it was like, it seemed like a tragedy because work was hard to get, but I ended up getting a better job because of it, so it was like, you know. Okay, so God was in charge of the yeah. loss of the job as well as the gain of a new one. Okay. All right. Now, how do we recognize these things? Do we recognize them at the time we're in them normally? We usually see it after the fact, right? When we look back over and we see the pattern and suddenly realize, well, why was I so shook up about losing my job? Look what God did with that. If I'd known this before, I would have been more calm about losing my job, right? That's the way we are. Butch? Yes. Mm -hmm. That's why he says, remember, remember my deeds. All right? Anyone else? How does God reveal his control over your life? Yes, Stephen. to watch for it, don't we? What, what, what do we do when we go out for a hike in the hills? Uh, do we close our eyes to everything we see, or are we watching for animals? We're watching for the flowers. We're watching for the pattern of clouds in the sky. You know, when we're out in the world of nature, don't we keep our eyes open to look for the opportunities to see God's glory, his beauty in the design that we have? The problem is we do that for his creative work, but we seldom do it in looking at our lives in what we're living and how we live and watching for those beautiful little opportunities where we see God is at work. And that's part of what Solomon is talking about. He's very convinced of this. And he talks about the righteous and the wise as servants. That's a word for slaves of God. 
needing to recognize God's lordship. He is in control. He's Lord. And if he's in control, then whatever happens to us is something he's allowing for some purpose to teach us, to lead us, or in some way to fashion us for his will. And to bring us through it. And sometimes maybe it's just for us to learn to trust him, right? In what he gives us. To what does love or hatred refer in uh, the verses, the first verse here at the end? Uh, man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. This concept of love or hatred, there different commentators have different views. Some commentators say the love or hatred here is our love or hatred. We don't know how we're going to react in any situation. Whether they're going to respond with love, whether they're going to respond with hatred. Others say it's not us, it's others. We don't know how, for example, others are going to receive me. Steve says something about the cataracts in his eyes and how are people going to respond to him. Are people going to respond with compassion or with a lack of compassion? Uh, we, we talk about Karen Richardson and the, the trial that that family is going through as she is uh, gradually leaving this life and will soon be entering the Lord's presence. And... Um, how often has that met with a compassion and how often has it met with perhaps a, an obstruction of the way people react? Uh, we have to think about those things. We, we don't know how people are going to react to various situations. Uh, you may be new here as, as we have two visitors with us this morning. And they're, they're wondering, now how's this church going to react to us? Are they going to respond in, in uh, friendliness or are they going to be cold? and uh, just kind of ignore us, right? We all think of that when we're going to a new group of people. How, how are people going to respond? So some say that's what's involved here. But as we look at the overall text here, of what Solomon is talking about, it appears that really it's, it's something different than that. It's the love or hatred, so to speak, from God. And uh, when we look at that, uh, it seems that here Solomon is referring to the unpredictability of God's favor. Notice in Malachi how God says, I have loved you, says the Lord, speaking to Israel. But you, Israel, say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Now, what does God mean by that? Does that is he talking about pure love and pure hate? Or is he using these here as I looked upon Jacob with favor, I did not look upon Esau with favor. Jacob I chose, Esau I rejected. Now, do any of us know whether or not as, as we come into life, do we any, does any person know whether or not we're going to be accepted by God or rejected by him? Whether we're going to be like Jacob or whether we're going to be like Esau? You see, that's the point, I think, that Solomon is making here. We have no idea of what God's choice is and what God's favor is. And so we await it not knowing. And notice the last words of verse 1. They say anything awaits him. Anything awaits him. As we look at that, that's literally the all before them. The all before them. Now, what does that include and what does it involve? Well, I've, in the handout there, you can see the various English translations. I gave you there about uh, eight or nine of them that have different translations for this uh, phrase. It's a small little phrase at the end of verse 1, but many take it in a different light. 
And so as we're looking at that, we have to try to understand what is involved. And I think the idea or concept here is that the events yet to come in a person's life under the sun are unknown. Do any of you know what's going to happen to you tomorrow? Anyone have it? No, for certain? I mean, you may even say, well, I have an appointment to do such and such. Or I, I, I'm scheduled to do this. I'm scheduled that. I, yeah, I know what I'm going to do. But do you know that you're going to be there for certain? Do you know you're going to make that appointment? You see, we have no guarantees, do we? We do not know. We can plan. We can schedule. But we're not in charge of, of the outcome of whether that actually happens. I, uh, just uh, this past year, I had an appointment to meet with a group of men uh, to discuss certain things of the Word of God, and uh, I was excited about it. I left home uh, in the morning and headed off to the meeting point and uh, got on the 405 and was heading south, and suddenly I had a blowout. And uh, I thought, oh boy. Well, I can just pull over. Fortunately, the blowout uh, allowed me to keep some control, and I didn't hit the median, which I was very close to at one point. I got over to the side and got out and said, oh, this is easy. I'll just change, and I'll be on my way again. I couldn't get the hood open. It had jammed. I tried everything else. Finally, I just had to walk to a box and phone for help and uh, waited and waited and waited, and no one showed up. The... Uh, uh, travelers thing I have, uh, they weren't too quick in responding. So I called back an hour later, and the lady I talked to then says, we have no record of your first call. And I says, well, that's really wonderful. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, I don't think I said that, <laughs> right? But you see, God intervenes. Finally, the high patrol stopped, and he says, you called whom? And he started laughing. <laughs> and then he told me about how the freeway system is all turned over to a contractor. The high patrol no longer operates it, and so it's undependable. You don't know if anyone's going to come out, all of that type thing. So he got on the horn. He called, and the third person called showed up. The first person finally showed up after the third person was there. <laughs> but then I had to get the hood open. I took it to a shop. They, they took my truck with me to a shop and in the shop they couldn't get it open and they said you're going to have to go to the Ford dealer and I said well that's way back up in Santa Clarita and they said well that's, we, can, we can get your tire taken care of for you but we cannot get the, the, uh, anything else done for you so I ended up working on that truck all day long never made it to the meeting it was God's design right I had a plan I had an appointment but it didn't happen. We don't know. We have no idea what's coming. Now, that moves on. Yes, Carol. But don't we always look at whatever happens as coming from God's love for us? Rather we must. We have to. If we don't, we're going to be miserable. So the hatred means just we don't know whether it's going to be good or bad? Right. Yeah. And, and here's the way Solomon talks about it. He doesn't know whether he's going to receive the favor of God, which means in his mind that instead he's going to experience adversity, misery, trouble, as opposed to experiencing God's favor, which means I'll experience good things. All right? So yes, we need to do that. And notice what happens in the next verse. We have this tiny little, little phrase at the end of verse 1 that literally said, the all before them, 
And then verse 2 begins with it is the same for all, which is literally the all just as for the all. We have all, 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 all right here in a row, right in the middle here. These two phrases form a hinge between these two verses to tie them together. And it's a repetition that reminds us of all is vanity that we see throughout the book. And the concept here is everyone is going to someday experience death. That is the point of verse 2. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice, for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. Now, look at these pairs that are given. It's the same whether a person is righteous or wicked. It's the same whether they're good and clean or unclean. Now, why good and clean? All of these have seemingly one statement that is positive and one negative. This has two positives. And perhaps here it's the, the idea, it's not just talking about physical purity, it's talking about spiritual purity and morality. Therefore, good and clean is used. Whether you bring a sacrifice or whether you don't have a sacrifice, whether you are a good person or you are a sinner, one who vows, and the idea here seems to be, since these are all positives that are first given, then the one who vows has to be something positive. And that means someone who is willing to promise God something and to perform it. Or to promise loyalty to God's covenant. To make a commitment, in other words. The one who commits himself to doing God's will as, the, as compared to the one who's afraid of committing themselves to do God's will. Literally, it is they are afraid to make a vow. They fear a vow. They fear the swearing. And so it's the person who will not commit themselves to serving God. Now, I find this whole thing very interesting because you see the wicked paralleled with those who don't bring a sacrifice. You see the sinner paralleled with one who does not commit themselves to do God's will. It's quite instructive, but notice it doesn't matter. On both sides of this equation, every one of these will one day die. They will experience death. Now, let's ask a question. If we're all going to die someday, and is there anyone here who believes that that's not going to happen? Unless the rapture, Unless the rapture takes place. That's right. The rapture is going to be the only exception, correct? Otherwise, we're all going to die. If the Lord doesn't come soon and rapture us out of here, we're going to die. All right? Why then, and we could say this even if we're looking to the rapture, why do we fill our lives with distractions and squander what little time we have with insignificant worries. Why? Why do we do that? We're human. It's a habit. What else? Why? Pardon? We forget. We forget what? We forget that God's in control. Okay, what else? Why don't we? Okay, we're finite. We're powerless. Yes. All right. I think that's a huge part of it right there. We want to have control of our lives. We don't want to yield it up to God and make him Lord of our lives. We want to control our circumstances. Right? And so we, well, Tom, you may be unusual. All right? I won't ask for confirmation. 
But, uh, you know, it, we sometimes just fight God, don't we? And we say, I want control. And so we find these distractions. I don't want to think about the fact I'm going to die. I'm going to do all these other things. I'll get distracted. And, and we end up wasting our time. Right? I mean, just the other day I had to sign up for Medicare. No, getting that age. <laughs> and uh, as I sit there looking at it and looking to see what I have in the retirement, things like that, you're thinking, okay. And uh, my father's uh, 89th birthday would have been yesterday. And uh, he went home to be at the Lord uh, four years ago. And I keep remembering, you know, that uh, that's going to happen one day to me. Unless the Lord comes and I'm raptured, like Tom said, I'm going to die too. Now, when will that be? Well, you sit down, you, you get out your own actuary tables. You say, okay, my dad died at this age, my grandfather at this age, et cetera, et cetera. And you begin looking at him and you say, oh, well, that means I could be gone from here within 10 to 15 years if the Lord tarries. And you say, okay, I've got 10 years left. What am I going to do with those 10 years? Right? That's the point, you see. So why do we waste our time doing something else that's insignificant? See, we have to think about those things. Why else do we waste our time with the insignificant and with these distractions? Anyone else? Okay. We are in denial. Right? I told my boss that I said I'm going to retire such and such a year. He laughed at me and says, not if I'm here. <laughs> and I said, well, I wouldn't tempt God that way if I were you. <laughs> and then someone from Human Resources is over that I was talking to about retirement. And he says, well, have you told your boss this? And I says, oh, yes. And he says, why did you say? And I said, he's in denial. And he laughed. And he says, I, I understand. Right? We get in denial. We say, oh, no, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to be like my dad and die at a certain age. I'm not going to be like my grandfather and die at a certain age. I'm not going to be like my mother and die at a certain age or my brother or anyone else. I'm different. Right? We're in denial. Okay? Could it be sometimes, too, something that no one's mentioned yet, that we are just plain outright afraid? And that makes us feel guilty because we know that since we're believers, we ought not be afraid, right? And so how do we avoid dealing with our fear properly? We find distractions to take it out of our minds, right? We put our fingers in our ears and say, ah, no, 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 I'm not listening, right? Got that from right back there. <laughs> That's right. Okay, well, let's go further. Life has its curves. Be prepared. Right? I got thrown this curve with my uh, notice on my license. Mm -hmm. You know? It's a curve. But, see what God's going to teach me through it. Right? So what is Solomon's advice given these things are true? His advice is, number one, avoid the distractions. Stay focused. Focus on what is important. Focus on the spiritual. Focus on serving God. Focus on enjoying your life that God has given you. Focus on your family. Focus on what God has placed in your hand to do for him. Use the remainder of your life wisely. Don't waste it. Use it wisely. And listen, no matter how young you are or how old you are, 
whether you're Marvin sitting up here in the front, right? Or whether you want the younger people sitting here. No one knows when that day is going to come, right? Maybe three years. We have no idea when it's going to happen. So this is what we need to do. In fact, just, just look ahead in, in the uh, book of Ecclesiastes. When we get into the book of Ecclesiastes and you get to chapter 11 and chapter 12, that's exactly what Solomon points out. He's saying, you young people that have been listening to me and reading this all along and you're thinking, oh, that applies to my parents, that applies to my grandparents, it doesn't apply to me, he suddenly turns and says, I'm talking to you, young people. And he drives the point home. Because you don't know either how long you have. All right? He speaks of death itself as an evil in verse 3. And it's evil not in the sense that it's wicked or sinful. It's the idea that it is misery and trouble. Death is not easy. Talk to Karen Richardson about this week that she just went through. Dying is not easy. Some die easily, some don't. And it can be misery. That's part of it. And that's what he is talking about here in verse 3. This is an evil. This is something that is miserable. This is trouble. This is trial in all that is done under the sun. That there's one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men. Now he moves to the moral part of it, the, the, the spiritual part. He says, talks now about the depravity of men. He says, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. And what he's saying here is that, hey, wait a minute. Remember, and he's way before Paul, but Paul wrote, the wages of sin is death, right? No one would be dying if it had not been for sin, right? So sin's involved. Therefore, we've got to admit we are sinners. And therefore, if we're sinners, and if death is a just reward or wage for us as sinners, then how do we resolve that with God? And that is what Solomon is beginning to do here. He's beginning to take the props and knock them out from underneath everyone to cause them to say, you know what? There's nothing I can do. I have to trust God. Now, malevolence and madness make a morbid mixture. How do you like my M's there? I should have handed out M&Ms at this point. <laughs> Right? Marvelous. Now, <laughs> oh, thank you, Mello. <laughs> Yay, good one. I got you. All right. <laughs> but let's, let's think about the hard questions. Look at these two hard questions. Why did you walk away from your family? Can you think of someone that you would like to ask that question to or you have asked that question to? What about this one? How can you continue to live like that, knowing that it's wrong and that Scripture stands against such things? Do you know of someone that you'd like to ask that question of? Perhaps yourself? What are some other hard questions you can think of that demonstrate the depravity of man and the difficulty of God getting our attention? What other questions can you think of along that line? Hard questions. 
Anyone? Yes. I'd like to ask Bernie Madoff something. What would you like to ask him? Why did he do that? Why couldn't he take money from his sister, from his friends, and knowing that he was stealing from them? Okay. How could you do such a terrible thing to those whom you love? It's kind of related to that topic, except it's a different direction. It was greed where this other could be lust. All right? Other hard questions? Yes, Diane? How can you live with yourself knowing, especially as a believer, the Holy Spirit tugging at your heart, how could you press what you know is right? I mean, in other words, how can you live with yourself? Okay. That's related to the second one, isn't it? Really? How can you live with yourself? You know, these are hard questions. These are questions we need to really wrestle with in our lives from time to time. And these are the things Solomon is talking about. These are the results of sin. These are the evidence of the depravity of man. And their life faces us with very hard questions. And it, comes, it boils down, does it not, to an individual responsibility before God to be obedient? Notice how this closes. The end of verse 3 is afterwards they go to the dead. And literally, that phraseology that is given there is uh, the idea of afterwards dead. In other words, death is abrupt. It comes suddenly, abruptly. And the question is, how in the world do we prepare for it? How do we prepare for it? Notice here there's a mention of hope in verse 4. For whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. Now that word for hope is not the idea of wishing for something that might be. This is a word that really means trust, certitude, and assurance. It's the idea of certainty of things as they are and certainty of things as they will be. There's a confidence, a trust, or a security here. And the metaphor that Solomon used in comparison here is a live dog is better than a dead lion. <laughs> All right? In other words, it's better to be a kicked dog in the streets, scavenging in the garbage and still alive, than to be the king of beasts and dead. And the, the advantage is what? Well, the advantage that he brings out is you know you're going to die. Now, what advantage is that? The, the dead lion doesn't know he's going to die. He's already dead, and he no longer is thinking about such things, all right? The live dog is looking for his meal and understands the urgency. If we're alive, then we have the confidence that we're yet going to die, and the advantage is knowing that. And why is that an advantage? Carl? Still time to repent. Still time to do what we know we ought to do. Still time to make things right. Still time to reconcile with those with whom we have lost our relationships. Still time to do God's will. Still time. You see? That's the advantage. Every one of us in this room has that advantage right now. It's an advantage that those who have already died no longer possess because that advantage is given to us only once and it's 
only during that one life we live. And it's only now that we can do anything about it. Because once we're dead, there is no more saying, oh, but I intended to obey God. Oh, I intended to give this to someone. Or I intended to show love. Or I intended to reconcile. Or I intended to, to go and tell someone I forgave them. Or I intended to ask forgiveness for what I've done. No, there's no more chance then. It's over. It's all set in stone now, literally. A headstone, okay? That one advantage is we know we will die. That word certitude, there are some things here we can say about that certitude. According to Solomon in this chapter, we have a certitude of meeting God. We know we're going to stand before God one day. Number two, we have a certitude that it is significant how we live. It does make a difference how we live. For our salvation, no. For our sanctification, yes. For our joy of living, yes. For our pleasing God, yes. For spiritual reward when we see him, yes. It is significant how we live now. And, and think of it another way too. It's also significant how we live now as to how others will remember us when we're gone. How will our families remember us? As cold, grumpy, bitter, preoccupied with distractions, or as someone who enjoyed the life God gave and had right relationships with others and showed compassion for others. You see, that's how are we going to be remembered. And the last is the certitude of God's glory being that which we each must pursue under the sun. We know that. We've got to seek his glory. Not ours, but his. Now, in verse 5, Solomon seals this with a pun. He says, For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. <laughs> the words for reward and memory sound alike. Sakar and Zekev. All right? And it's used to point out here the contrast. And, and the idea is here, our expected reward or wages for a lifetime of labor, we expect then to be remembered. You know, some people say, I'm building a monument for my posterity. I'm building a monument. I'm, I'm leaving a home for my family. Uh, I'm leaving this. I'm leaving a, leaving a business. That'll be a testimony. Or I'm leaving a ministry that will be a testimony. We think about the things that we're trying to do to leave to our posterity or to be a monument to us in some way or other. But instead, what is the reward? Lack of memory. Our body's not even cold in the grave and we're already forgotten by most of those people we thought we would be impressing by the way we lived our lives. The point here, the contrast, this irony in this play on words, this pun here, the wage, the reward is to be forgotten. We will be forgotten. You see, a person can only enjoy God's under the sun gifts in this life. You have only this one time to do it. And life under the sun we experience, according to verse 6, our love, our hate, our zeal is now for that which counts and for that which is the enjoyment of life. And the opportunities and joys this brief life happen only this once. 
And at this point, <coughs> Solomon begins the refrain, the enjoyment refrain, of verses 7 through 9. And these, these refrains have been growing in a crescendo, and this is the most powerful and the strongest yet. It doesn't say it is better than something. Instead, it's go, eat, drink, and enjoy. Excuse me. Something in the air. It's getting to me. Uh, the joy refrains here reach a crescendo with these urgent summonses that Solomon gives. He, notice here, I gave you a, a few uh, notes there, quoted some other people. <sighs> Sidney Grydness said, go. It's a wake-up call. There's no time to waste. Stop your complaining. Stop nursing your anger. Stop brooding about your problems. Get over your anxiety. Get over your problems. Get over your troubles. Get over the way you feel. Get busy and enjoy life. That's exactly what Solomon's doing. It's an urgent wake-up call. He's no longer saying, hey, it's better than. He's saying, do it. The imperatives here. These are the imperatives how to live wisely. And his advice coincides with what we see in the early church's behavior. Uh, as we look at Acts chapter 2, verse 46, what do we see the early church doing there in Jerusalem? What were they doing? Praying. Praying breaking, bread. breaking bread. Eating. Fellowship. What else? Fellowship. Fellowship singing. singing. Praying. Witnessing. Having all things in common, caring for one another, they were busy enjoying life. Eating, drinking, enjoying life. What does Paul say? In fact, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. And this is probably as far as we'll get today. And I'd hope to get through chapter 9, but as you can tell from the notes, in the book I'm writing on, on uh, the commentary, it's almost 20 pages long, and I reduced it to a little over 9. And I just thought, boy, it's going to be hard to reduce it further, and I'm just going to be stuck. So we're just going to have to continue it next week. But uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, look what Paul says. He says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own consciences with a branding iron, men who... Enjoy marriage? Forbid marriage. Solomon says, enjoy it. And advocate abstaining from foods. Notice, don't eat. Paul warns about those who come along and say, don't enjoy life with your mate, and don't eat, and don't drink. Paul says those are signs of the end times, those signs of wicked and sinful men, disobedient to God, heretics who are leading you astray, who tell you the opposite. Don't enjoy, don't eat, don't drink. All right? Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God, what? Has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. God created these things for us to enjoy. Right? For everything created by God is good. He created food. He created drink. He created marriage. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. You see, don't think that the book of Ecclesiastes is just some Old Testament book 
that talks about things in an unspiritual fashion and looks at things through an eye of a pessimist and a person who is bitter and who is unbelieving and who is angry. Solomon speaks truth here that agrees with exactly what the New Testament instructs us about. This is a truth consistent from one cover to the other in Scripture. Right? Let's bow in prayer as we close. Father, we thank you and praise you for everything that you've given to us. And we've come to this enjoyment passage here in verses 7 through 9. We'll continue with it next week, Lord, according to your will, if you allow us to. And we just ask that during this week, with the opportunities we have, that we each one might seek to live what you've instructed here, being aware that our time is short and brief on this earth, but being desirous of living for you and help us above all else to glorify you in whatever we do, whether it's in eating or drinking or if it's in whatever we put our hands to do, that we do it to your glory. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes.